This is Resonance 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. I'm Nick Hennigan and welcome to another slice of Literary London. Uh, for the next 30 minutes. Also, of course, if you're listening on BohemianBritain.com, how are you doing? Yeah, the next 30 minutes. I'm actually in a pub, by the way. I should just point out if it sounds a bit different. Hmm? They're really, really behaving. I mean, I'm in the, the barn. Not many pubs in London have got barns. Yeah, this one has. It's also got a wood burner in the corner. I'm sure it's that, you know, proper eco wood. Yes, it is. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on my own in the barn. Uh, at the uh, <laughs> Yeah, a pub called The Cross Keys on Black Line Lane in Hammersmith. Uh, W6, I think we're W6 here, aren't we? Yeah. So, yes, pop down and say, Nick says hello, because he does his radio show in the pub. And I thought I should do this in a pub this week because, well... We've celebrated his life before, but of course it's October uh, where I'm recording this. I'm not sure when you're listening to it. Excuse me. And on the 27th of October in 1914 was born a Welshman. Now I hear you cry. It's all right. Don't cry. It's not worth it. Yes, it's literary London. Why are you talking about a Welshman? Well, of course, the Welshman I'm talking about is, of course, the poet Dylan Thomas, who spends an awful lot of time uh, in London. Um, as he used to say, he needs London for clubbing and drinking and talking. But he also used to say he could only really write it effectively in Wales. So kind of a man, um, or I'm a man of his own heart, really. I kind of understood that sentiment, having been to Wales myself as a child. Um, and in fact, that's still where we tend to go now. That is absolutely where we go uh, uh, for our holidays uh, to Wales. Clannon, how you doing? How's the white swan? But that's another story. Uh, so Dylan Thomas, uh, we're going to celebrate his genius. He was born, as I say, 27th of October 1914 in Swansea in South Wales. His father was an uh, English literature professor at the local grammar school in Swansea. And uh, Dylan says that as a, <laughs> as a young boy, uh, he would often, his father would often recite William Shakespeare uh, to him in bed, a bedtime story, uh, which kind of, he says, gave him his love for the rhythmic ballads of like sort of people like General, uh, General Manley Hopkins and W.B. Yeats and Edgar Allan Poe. Um, he left school at 16, became a junior reporter for the South Wales Daily Post. By December 1932, he had left his job at the Post and decided to concentrate on his poetry full-time. Uh, it was this time, sort of in his late teens, really, that Thomas wrote more than half of his collected poems. But then in 1934, when the boy was 20, Dylan Thomas moved to London. He won the Poets' Corner Prize and published his first book, 18 Poems, uh, published, I do believe, by the Fortune Press. Um, yes, in, in the same year, and it came out to great acclaim. Uh, the book drew from a collection of notebooks that Dylan had written years earlier, as would many of his most popular books. And in fact, oh, when was it? Five years ago, I was at an auction uh, for a Dylan Thomas notebook that had been unearthed in the States. And uh, it was a very exciting time yes i went in for the auction i just stood at the back obviously my threat was eight me would have done nothing but it was uh, it was great to know and actually to see one of dylan's uh, notebooks in the in the flesh so he um he's a fantastic writer um but i suppose unlike unlike his contemporaries Eliot and Auden, thomas was not really concerned with discussing social and intellectual 
issues in his writing. And of course, he was always aware, I do believe, from the bits I've read about him and talking to his relatives, he was always aware of the fact he never went to university, having left school at 16. So his writing was sort of, um, instead sort of inhibited or exhibited intense lyricism and very charged emotion. Um, so in a sense, perhaps he had more in common with the, the romantic tradition. He described his technique in a letter. He wrote, I make one image, although make is not the right word, I let perhaps an image be made emotionally in me and then apply to it what intellectual and critical forces I possess. Let it breed another, let that image contradict the first, make of the third image bred out of the other two together a fourth contradictory image and let them all, within my imposed former limits, conflict. There you go. It's <laughs> pretty cool, isn't it? Um, uh, Mark Schmidt uh, uh, talked about, uh, the, the intellectual and writer Mark Schmidt talked about Thomas's work. He said, there's a kind of authority to the word magic of the early poems. In the famous and popular later poems, the magic is all show. If they have a secret, it's the one we all share. Partly erotic, partly elegiac. The later poems arise out of personality. And of course, his poems are fantastic. But what I actually quite like as well is his stories. And so, and uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of flit around a little bit. Uh, there's a friend of mine who I met. He's now a friend, I should say. I met a chap, an actor called Guy Masterson, who is a performer, solo performer. And uh, he's also a director. In fact, he's got a show on Broadway that he directed at the moment called The Shark is Broken. Yeah, all about Jaws. Um, I'm quite excited as well because I wrote uh, or adapted and directed a version of A Christmas Carol <clears throat> and Guy came and did a reading for me and then we decided to make it into a full-on production. It was about four years ago and since then it's toured the UK, it's toured the Europe and in December this year it opens off-Broadway in New York. Yes, I'm probably going to have to go over, aren't I? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, don't worry, I'll take, I'll take my microphone. And so Guy Masterson as well sort of related, we think, I think it was the, he's the nephew of Richard Burton, the great actor, uh, and he's a great fan uh, uh, of Dylan Thomas. And I met Guy actually through another Welshman called Griff Rhys-Jones, who is a writer and a performer, a comedian, known in this country certainly for Not the Nine O'Clock News, a comedy show a few years ago. Uh, he's a great character. In fact, I had quite a few chats with him in his kitchen in London. I, I, might, I might replay those if he doesn't mind because uh, he also has a lot to say about Dylan Thomas and being Welsh and being an artist of course uh, but that is for later um, and then another artist who I came across when I did a version of Under Milkwood in the Wheatsheaf pub in London which is where the London Literary Pub Crawl starts that's how I got to know uh, I got involved with Griff Griff Riff Jones was arranging the uh, centenary of Dylan Thomas's birth <clears throat> and they asked me to get involved because I'd written the London Literary Pub Crawl uh, and uh, the pub crawl starts in the Wheatsheaf pub in Fitrovia, which is actually where Dylan met his wife, Caitlin. It was love at first sight. You'll have to come on the literary pub crawl. It goes out every Saturday at five o'clock. <laughs> if you want to know the whole details, because I haven't got time to tell it all here. Uh, but uh, it's a brilliant place. And I did under Milkwood up there. Um, and we only ran it for a week or so. And Dylan's family came as well. And then there was a... A sort of a woman came up to me and she said, have you got room? And we'd sold out. And she said, look, I'm really, really keen to get in. And uh, someone, one of the actors behind me said, it's all right, Keris Matthews can come in, can't she? And it took me a while to realise, of course, Keris Matthews, the famous musician, she now also presents a radio show. So her and her husband and her kids had to sit behind the bar because we'd run out of space. Um, but she was very keen to see it because she's a Dylan Thomas fan. And listening to this, you'll understand why.
years and years and years ago, when I was a boy, when there were wolves in Wales, and birds the colour of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills, when we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons in damp front farmhouse parlours, and we chased with the jawbones of deacons, the English and the bears. Before the motor car, before the wheel, before the duchess-faced horse, when we rode the daft and happy hills bareback, it snowed and it snowed. But here a small boy says, It snowed last year too. I made a snowman and my brother knocked it down and I knocked my brother down and then we had tea. But that was not the same snow, I say. Our snow was not only shaken from whitewashed buckets down the sky, it came shawling out of the ground and swam and drifted out of the arms and hands and bodies of the trees. Snow grew overnight on the roofs of the houses like a pure and grandfather moss, minutely white ivied the walls and settled on the postman opening the gate like a dumb, numb thunderstorm of white-torn Christmas cards. We're the postman then too. With sprinkling eyes and wind-cherried noses on spread, frozen feet, they crunched up to the doors and mittened on them manfully. But all that the children could hear was a ringing of bells. You mean that the postman went rat-a-tat-tat and the doors rang? I mean that the bells that the children could hear were inside them. I only hear thunder sometimes, never bells. There were church bells too. Inside them? No, 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 in the bat, black, snow-white belfries, tugged by bishops and storks. And they rang their tidings over the bandaged town, over the frozen foam of the powder and ice cream hills, over the crackling sea. It seemed that all the churches boomed for joy under my window and the weathercocks crew for Christmas on our fence. Get back to the postmen. They were just ordinary postmen, fond of walking and dogs and Christmas and the snow. They knocked on the doors with blue knuckles. Ours has got a black knocker. And then they stood on the white welcome mat in the little drifted porches and huffed and puffed, making ghosts with their breath, and jogged from foot to foot like small boys wanted to go out. And then the presents after the Christmas box, and the cold postman with a rose on his button nose tingled down the tea tray slithered run of the chilly Clinton Hill. He went in his ice-bound boots like a man on fishmonger slabs. He wagged his bag like a frozen camel's hump. Dizzily turned the corner on one foot, and by God, he was gone. Isn't that gorgeous? Keris Matthews. 
and uh, from Dylan Thomas's A Child's Christmas in Wales. I do love that. And uh, it was Caitlin, I forget her name, on the on the harp. It's a lovely song. And I shall play that again, no doubt. I mean, it's a bit festive, a bit festive, but uh, you, get the, you get the idea, don't you? Um, and so we're celebrating the life and times of Dylan Thomas on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, this is Literary London. I'm Nick Hennigan, also on bohemianbritain.com. As always, if you've got any events happening that you'd like me to talk about or like me to come to, or we can have a chat on Zoom and use the video on YouTube, then do please get in touch. You can either get me at radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk, radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk, or I've got a new email now. Oh, yeah. Nick, N-I-C-K, that's me. Nick at bohemianbritain.com. Yes, nick at bohemianbritain.com. So do get in touch. Uh, we also do occasional request shows. So if you've got a special person in your life, drop us a little uh, a little email and tell us who it is. Um, if there's a particular song or a poem or a bit of music that you'd like playing for them, we'll do that too. But now we come to Dylan Thomas's stories. As I mentioned before, Guy Masterson, uh, is an award-winning actor, uh, and I consider him a friend now. He's also acting in my version of A Christmas Carol, which I wrote and directed, and he's uh, touring the UK this Christmas, uh, and it's opening on Broadway, or off-Broadway, I should say, officially, in New York in December. Um, a great fan of Dylan Thomas. He does a fantastic under Milkwood. But this is one of Dylan's stories. I love this. It's called A Visit to Grandpa's. In the middle of the night, I woke from a dream full of whips and lariats as long as serpents and runaway coaches on mountain passes and wide, windy gallops over cactus fields, and I heard the man in the next room crying, Gee up! and whoa! and trotting his tongue on the roof of his mouth. It was the first time I had stayed at Grandpa's house. The floorboards had squeaked like mice as I climbed into bed, and the mice between the walls had creaked like wood, as though another visitor were walking on them. It was a mild summer night, but curtains had flapped, branches beaten against the window. I had pulled the sheets over my head, and soon was roaring and riding in a book. "'Whoa there, my beauties!' cried Grandpa." His voice sounded very young and loud, and his tongue had powerful hooves, and he'd made his bedroom into a great meadow. I thought I would see if he was ill, or had set his bedclothes on fire, for my mother had said that he lit his pipe under the blankets, and had warned me to run to his help if I ever smelt smoke in the night. I went on tiptoe through the darkness to his bedroom door, brushing against the furniture and upsetting a candlestick with a thump. When I saw there was a light in the room, I felt frightened, and as I opened the door, I heard Grandpa shout, Gee up! as loudly as a bull with a megaphone. He was sitting straight up in bed, and rocking from side to side, as though the bed were on a rough road. The knotted edges of the counterpane were his reins. His invisible horse stood in a shadow beyond the bedside candle. Over a white flannel nightshirt, he was wearing a bright red waistcoat with walnut-sized brass buttons. The overfilled bowl of his pipe smouldered among his whiskers like a little burning hayrick on a stick. At the sight of me, his hands dropped from the reins and lay blue and quiet. The bed stopped still on a level road. He muffled his tongue into silence, and the horses drew softly up. Is there anything the matter, Grandpa? I asked, though the clothes were not on fire. 
His face in the candlelight looked like a ragged quilt pinned upright on the black air and patched all over with goat beards. He stared at me mildly, then blew down his pipe, scattering the sparks and making a high, wet dog whistle of the stem and shouted, "'Ask no questions!' After a pause, he said slyly, "'Do you ever have nightmares, boy?' I said, "'No.' "'Oh, yes, you do,' he said. I said I was woken by a voice that was shouting to horses. "'What did I tell you?' he said. "'You eat too much. Who ever heard of horses in a bedroom?' He fumbled under his pillow, brought out a small, tinkling bag, and carefully untied its strings. He put a sovereign in my hand and said, "'Buy a cake.' I thanked him and wished him good night, and as I closed my bedroom door, I heard his voice crying loudly and gaily, "'Gee up! Gee up!' and the rocking of the travelling bed. In the morning, I woke from a dream of fiery horses on a plain that was littered with furniture, and of large, cloudy men who rode six horses at a time and whipped them with burning bedclothes. Grandpa was at breakfast dressed in deep black. After breakfast, he said, "'There was a terrible loud wind in the night,' and sat in his armchair by the hearth to make clay balls for the fire. Later in the morning, he took me for a walk through Johnstown Village and into the fields on the Llanstephan Road. A man with a whippet said, "'There's a nice morning, Mr. Thomas!' And when he had gone, leanly as his dog, into the short, treed, green wood he should not have entered because of the notices, Grandpa said, "'There, do you hear what he called you? Mister?' We passed by small cottages, and all the men who leant on the gates congratulated Grandpa on the fine morning. We passed through the wood full of pigeons, and their wings broke the branches as they rushed to the tops of the trees. Among the soft, contented voices and the loud, timid flying, Grandpa said, like a man calling across a field, "'If you heard those old birds in the night, you'd wake me up and say there was horses in the trees.' We walked back slowly, for he was tired, and the lean man stalked out of the forbidden wood with the rabbit held as gently over his arm as a girl's arm in a warm sleeve.' On the last day but one of my visit, I was taken to Llanstephan in a governess cart pulled by a short, weak pony. Grandpa might have been driving a bison, so tightly he held the reins, so ferociously cracked the long whip, so blasphemously shouted warnings to boys who played in the road, so stoutly stood with his gaitered legs apart and cursed the demon strength and willfulness of his tottering pony. "'Look out, boy!' he cried when we came to each corner, and pulled and tugged and jerked and sweated and waved his whip like a rubber sword.' And when the pony had crept miserably round each corner, Grandpa turned to me with a sighing smile. We weathered that one, boy. When we came to Llanstephan village at the top of the hill, he left the cart by the Edwinsford Arms and patted the pony's muzzle and gave it sugar, saying, You were a weak little pony, Jim, to pull big men like us. He had strong beer, and I had lemonade, and he paid Mrs. Edwinsford with a sovereign out of the tinkling bag. She inquired after his health, and he said that Llangadoc was better for the tubes. 
We went to look at the churchyard and the sea and sat in the wood called the Sticks and stood on the concert platform in the middle of the wood where visitors sang on midsummer nights and year by year the innocent of the village was elected mayor. Grandpa paused at the churchyard and pointed over the iron gate at the angelic headstones and the poor wooden crosses. There's no sense in lying there, he said. We journeyed back furiously. Jim was a bison again. I woke late on my last morning, out of dreams where the San Stefan Sea carried bright sailing boats as long as liners, and heavenly choirs in the sticks, dressed in bards' robes and brass-buttoned waistcoats, sang in a strange Welsh to the departing sailors. Grandpa was not at breakfast. He rose early. I walked in the fields with the new sling and shot at the towie gulls and the rooks in the parsonage trees. A warm wind blew from the summer points of the weather. A morning mist climbed from the ground and floated among the trees and hid the noisy birds. In the mist and the wind, my pebbles flew lightly up like hailstones in a world on its head. The morning passed without a bird falling. I broke my sling and returned for the midday meal through the parson's orchard. Once, Grandpa told me, the parson had bought three ducks at Carmarthen Fair and made a pond for them in the centre of the garden, but they waddled to the gutter under the crumbling doorsteps of the house and swam and quacked there. When I reached the end of the orchard path, I looked through a hole in the hedge and saw that the parson had made a tunnel through the rockery that was between the gutter and the pond and had set up a notice in plain writing, this way to the pond. The ducks were still swimming under the steps. Grandpa was not in the cottage. I went into the garden, but Grandpa was not staring at the fruit trees. I called across to a man who leant on a spade in the field beyond the garden hedge. Have you seen my Grandpa this morning? He did not stop digging and answered over his shoulder. I seen him in his fancy waistcoat. Griff, the barber, lived in the next cottage. I called to him through the open door. Mr. Griff, have you seen my grandpa? The barber came out in his shirt sleeves. I said, he's wearing his best waistcoat. I did not know if it was important, but grandpa wore his waistcoat only in the night. Has grandpa been to Llanstefan? asked Mr. Griff anxiously. He went there yesterday in a little trap, I said. He hurried indoors, and I heard him talking in Welsh, and he came out again with his white coat on, and he carried a striped and coloured walking stick. He strode down the village street, and I ran by his side. When we stopped at the tailor shop, he cried out, Dan! And Dan Taylor stepped from his window, where he'd sat like an Indian priest, but wearing a derby hat. Dye Thomas has got his waistcoat on, said Mr. Griff, and he's been to Llanstefan. As Dan Taylor searched for his overcoat, Mr. Griff was striding on. Will Evans, he called outside the carpenter's shop. Die Thomas has been to Llanstefan, and he's got his waistcoat on. I'll tell Morgan now, said the carpenter's wife, out of the hammering, sawing darkness of the shop. We called at the butcher's shop and Mr. Price's house, and Mr. Griff repeated his message like a town crier. We gathered together in Johnstown Square. Dan Taylor had his bicycle, Mr. Price his pony trap, and Mr. Griff, the butcher, Morgan Carpenter and I climbed into the shaking trap and we trotted off toward Carmarthen Town. 
The tailor led the way, ringing his bell as though there were a fire or a robbery, and an old woman at the gate of a cottage at the end of the street ran inside like a pelted hen. Another woman waved a bright handkerchief. "'Where do we go when?' I asked. Grandpa's neighbours were as solemn as old men with black hats and jackets on the outskirts of a fair. Mr. Griff shook his head and mourned. "'I didn't expect this again from Di Thomas.' "'Not after the last time,' said Mr. Price, sadly. "'We trotted on. "'We crept up Constitution Hill. "'We rattled down into Lamas Street, "'and the tailor still rang his bell, "'and a dog ran squealing in front of his wheels. "'As we clip-clopped over the cobbles "'that led down to the Towie Bridge, "'I remembered Grandpa's nightly noisy journeys "'that rocked the bed and shook the walls, "'and I saw his gay waistcoat in a vision "'and his patchwork head tufted and smiling in the candlelight. "'The tailor before us turned round on his saddle. "'His bicycle wobbled and skidded. "'I see Dye Thomas!' he cried. "'The trap rattled onto the bridge, and I saw Grandpa there. "'The buttons of his waistcoat shone in the sun. "'He wore his tight black Sunday trousers "'and a tall dusty hat I had seen in a cupboard in the attic, "'and he carried an ancient bag. "'He bowed to us. "'Good morning, Mr. Price,' he said. "'And Mr. Griff, and Mr. Morgan, and Mr. Evans.' To me, he said, "'Morning, boy.' Mr. Griff pointed his coloured stick at him. "'And what do you think you are doing on Carmarthen Bridge "'in the middle of the afternoon?' he said sternly. "'With your best waistcoat and your old hat?' Grandpa did not answer, but inclined his face to the river wind so that his beard was set dancing and wagging as though he talked, and he watched the coracle men move like turtles on the shore. Mr. Griff raised his stunted barber's pole. "'And where do you think you are going?' he said. "'With your old black bag?' Grandpa said, "'I am going to Slangadoc to be buried.' and he watched the coracle shells slip lightly into the water, and the gulls complain over the fish-filled water as bitterly as Mr. Price complained. But you aren't dead yet, Di Thomas. For a moment, Grandpa reflected, and then... There's no sense in lying dead in San Stefan, he said. The ground is comfy in Llangadoc. You can twitch your legs there without putting them in the sea. His neighbours moved close to him. But you aren't dead, Mr. Thomas. How can you be buried then? Nobody's going to bury you in San Stefan. Come on home, die Thomas. Strong beer for tea. And cake. But Grandpa stood firmly on the bridge and he clutched his ancient bag to his side, and he stared at the flowing river and the sky like a prophet who has no doubt. The brilliant guy, Masterson. And that's our celebration of Dylan Thomas, and it's all we've got time for. Thanks for your company. I'm Nick Hennigan. This is Literary London on BohemianBritain.com and also on Residence 104.4 FM. <laughs>